0: Gospel of Luke, if you guys would not mind opening to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, how about we all stand and uh, just show some reverence towards God and his word, and then I'll read, then I'll pray, and then we'll jump in and look at this passage and what it's all about. Luke 24, verse 1, starting at verse 24, beginning at verse 1, down to verse 8, says this. On the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb. Taking the spices that they had prepared, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they had went in, they did not find the body of Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and they bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And then they remembered his words. And that's an important statement, that phrase, they remembered his words. I'm not going to read this, but if you skip on down to the next little uh, vignette or story that takes place. It's when Jesus is on this road to what's called Emmaus. He's hanging out with his disciples, and they reference it in the video. Jesus breaks bread with them, and it says, and then they realize something about their imagination was rekindled. Um, in other words, the big idea is that just like the disciples are prone towards forgetfulness, you and I, as human beings, we're prone to forget. So what we do on Easter Sunday, Easter Sunday is kind of like the Super Bowl of Christian church gatherings, all right? Um, so we celebrate, we remember what Jesus has done. But get this, we also have 51 mini football games throughout the year as well. So every week we come together and we remember this incredible event that our lives have been hijacked by, taken up by, called the resurrection. So I want to do, a, I want to pray, and then we'll begin to jump into what this means for us, or at least begin to try to scratch the surface of this. So Jesus, thank you for bringing people here today to meet with you, to learn from you, to grow, to have our curiosities uh, transformed, and in some ways rekindled. God, we thank you for your love. So speak your word to our hearts right now. Help me to be able to articulate and communicate the things that are in your heart, got things that have nothing to do with your heart, that are nothing more than just my word. Let them fall by the wayside and be totally forgotten. So we commit this time in your hands, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you guys all grab a seat? So, in Jesus' day, the predominant Greco-Roman belief, which was obviously influenced by philosophers and very smart, bright people that had written a lot extensively, had talked and uh, uh, taught—I should say—all around that particular region, uh, was really this idea that human reason was this profound virtue, and that human reason uh, could be tapped into, that inside of every human being, there is at deep level within each one of us, this ability, this reasonable being, that with given the right level of argumentation and logic, that we can come to an understanding of what we would call truth. That truth can somehow be surmised or understood or identified by logic and reason. Which, in some ways, I feel is kind of very optimistic, because as I look deep within myself, what I oftentimes discover is not truth, but actually a narcissist that's oftentimes ruled by unreasonable fears and desires, that oftentimes simultaneously wants to be able to devour an entire box of JoJo's, at the same time maintain a healthy, steady diet of fitness. But the fact of the matter is, this is humanity. That in each one of us, there are these contradictions that kind of define every one of us. And into this story of the Greco-Roman world, we see the story of Jesus... And it's a radically different story because what Jesus does as he comes on the scene is he doesn't come bringing a reasonable or logical story. In fact, quite the opposite. Because when you think about the, and consider the actual story of the Bible, there's a lot of it that this does not make a whole lot of reason. It doesn't make sense. I mean, if you think of it this way, at the very core of the Christian claim is a resurrected, meaning he's no longer dead, God. You realize how unreasonable that is. You realize that that goes against not only what we see, but what we experience, not just once or twice, but daily. You and I are repeatedly bombarded by story after story after experience after experience of nothing but a continual cycle of death. That's what we live in. That's our world. That's what's on the news. That's what's in our media feeds. That's what's in our lives and our experiences oftentimes. Not just physical death, but death on numerous levels. But the reality at the very heart of the Christian claim is not necessarily, not necessarily logic or reason, but something far more profound. It's a story. That's what we're given. We're given a story. It's a story about God moving into the neighborhood It's about God not only moving into the neighborhood, but moving into the poor side of town to a blue-collar family where he himself becomes connected with blue-collar people of the poor side of town. It's a story in which ultimately Jesus did not in any way, shape, or form seem to have any care or consideration of trying to maintain the status of Greek logic and understanding because Jesus seemed to give no consideration to this because he was not interested, not only in the religious elements of this day, which, by the way, that should pique our curiosity. Wait a minute, Jesus was not interested in religion? No, in fact, quite the opposite. Jesus actually was frustrated with religion. And if you are frustrated with religion, then you actually share something in common with Jesus. That's pretty awesome. But what we see with Jesus is that Jesus just had no interest in the formation of ideas the way the Greeks had them or even with the religion in which the Jews in which he was familiar with most had because what Jesus was super interested in was people. In fact, you can look at the life of Jesus and realize that whoever was right in front of Jesus at that moment, they were fully engaged with Jesus and perhaps for the very first time, they felt totally seen, Totally heard and totally loved. That's what Jesus cared about. It's a story that we have that involves Jesus interacting with a number of types of people from religious leaders to whores to politicians to forgotten old ladies that needed a miracle or that needed to be reacclimated into a community that had not only forgotten them but also had forsaken them. What we have is Jesus interacting with people. In fact, what we see is Jesus doing miracles. And what were miracles? Miracles were not just simply magic tricks up a prophet's sleeve. Jesus was doing things. And if you look at every single miracle Jesus performed, whether it be casting out a demon or calming a person's terror in their own heart, or their anxieties, or Jesus healing someone's blindness, or Jesus calling a forgotten old crippled woman uh, daughter of Abraham. What every single time Jesus did a miracle, what he was doing is, is rehumanizing people that had been chewed up, spit out, and dehumanized as a part of a deadly system. Do you understand this? This is amazing. So what Jesus does is something absolutely unprecedented. And yet the story takes this really odd twist because somewhere over a dinner party, Jesus is sitting with his disciples and as they're breaking bread, he says, oh, by the way, this bread is my body and the cup that you're about to drink is my blood. Yeah, that's weird. Because most people don't say that. If they do say that, it's a really odd way to engage in a dinner party. But he goes on to say that this broken body, this poured out blood, is actually for your forgiveness and acceptance. You'll be washed and cleanse, because this is a way of bringing you into this story that's about to continue to unfold. And then Jesus goes on, and he gets executed by a completely avoidable way. But the story doesn't end there, because as we celebrate today, is Resurrection Sunday, is that Jesus, three days later, shows up into the presence of his friends, completely blows their minds. As he walks into their midst, he comes to them. The very first words out of his mouth is, "Is, does anybody have anything to eat? Because I'm starving. Which is kind of a shocking way to say hi to your friends that thought you were dead for three days. But there's something not only radically beautiful and amazing about that, but also radically normal. I mean, after all, what are you gonna do after you've been dead for three days. You definitely have an appetite. So Jesus comes into the room, and there's something profoundly normal and yet abnormal about all of this. But this is what we have. We have this story. In fact, it's so crazy when you think about this. Paul, the apostle, in considering and thinking about, which is really what we're left with, is as we look at the story, we're left with questions. What does all this mean? What does it mean to have a savior who died on the cross, rise again from the dead three days later. What does all this mean? Paul the apostle later in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, would write these words. He says, the message of the cross is foolishness. And he goes on to say, but to us, it's the power of God. He says, it's foolishness to those that are, that are perishing, that are, that are acquainted with death, in other words. Those that are part of and have been infected by the cancerous tumors called death that are constantly prevalent in a variety of strains and forms in the world around us, but to us that are being saved, that are receiving it, it's, this, is, this is the power of God. It's interesting that Paul uses the word it's foolishness. That Greek word actually is the Greek word marios. We get the English words derived from, it's the word moron. So if anything, this shows you how the Greeks or the logical people of his day would have viewed the message of resurrection is moronic, it's foolish. Happy April Fool's Day, by the way. This is what we have. We have a story. It's a story of God doing something that for the most part doesn't make sense. And by the way, for some of us, this story may seem completely unbelievable. I get it. Do you understand, in a lot of ways, it was, it was unbelievable even to his disciples before the thing happened. Because it didn't just come out of a vacuum. It didn't come out of nowhere. Jesus, on many occasions, repeatedly communicated to him. He said, by the way, guys, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm going to be executed by way of crucifixion, which, by the way, is a whole other story and message we can talk about. It's one of the most brutal forms of death and execution possible. The whole aim of it was not to just kill somebody. There's all sorts of more convenient ways to murder someone. The whole aim of it was to completely, utterly dehumanize and humiliate them in front of spectators. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to be executed on a cross, but the third day I'm going to rise again. So had his disciples been paying attention following to his cues, on day three, they would have been having a party at the garden tomb. But instead, nobody was there with the exception of a couple of ladies, which is a whole other amazing story in and of itself, which I won't go into. But the point is this. This is what we have. It's a story. It's a story that needs to be considered and thought about. And for some, again, like I said, I realize that this may seem implausible and ridiculous and moronic. Paul's been saying it's been that way since the very beginning. It to- I get it. It makes sense. Paul understands it. But the fact of the matter is the burden, I would say, for somebody that would be a skeptic of it, I understand the reasons for skepticism. It makes total plausibility and sense. But the fact of the matter is the burden of disproving this event— would actually lay upon you to think through this. Because the fact of the matter is, something happened 2,000 years ago that utterly changed the world. I mean, one simple thing you can consider and think about is in Jerusalem alone, that in a place where you don't have multiple religions for the most part, I mean, it's distinctly Jewish, but what you have is the emergence of a brand new, proclamation that Jesus is Yahweh come in the flesh. You realize if you were a good Jew living in first century Judaism, that pretty much amounts to uh, heresy. Like you are literally laying claim that there is, that, that Yahweh is Jesus. That That's heresy. Like you would not only be perhaps ostracized for your community. So in other words, if you had a business and you were selling I don't know, falafels in the middle of downtown. Like, your business would no longer be able to be a viable thing. And you would not only be ostracized from society, you might even face the same fate as Jesus, which is exactly what happened. Hundreds, if not thousands, we know this historically, were brutally murdered at the hands of not only Jews, but also Romans that did not understand or did not recognize what the Jesus movement was all about. Why? Because of a myth? No, because what happened was they could not deny the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead. And this was their story. They were swept up into this story, and it changed their life. And it has the power to change your life, too. So, in considering this idea, like, what is this story all about? I want to take a look at just three specific things. I can spend a lot of time talking a lot about a lot of this, but I'm not. I'm just going to refine it down to three. So, As considering this story, the implications of this is something to be unpacked throughout the rest of your life, but at least three things we can look at. The first one is that the resurrection tells us, among many other things, that whatever Jesus set forth to do and to accomplish on his death, in other words, whatever dying in a Roman cross was attempting to accomplish, actually accomplished it. Why? Why? Because three days later, he was raised again from the dead. Which means, at least if anything, that God, who's a ruler over all things, had enough confidence, trust, however you want to think about it, recognition that whatever Jesus did on the cross actually mattered. That when Jesus shouted from the cross, it is finished. It actually was finished. Now we can go into like what was finished and what does this all mean. That would be for another time we're going to keep our time limited just simply the fact that whatever it was that was accomplished on the cross was accomplished, happened, took place, because Jesus resurrected from the dead on the third day. Paul would later on go on to describe this in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. He says that he was declared or announced to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul would go on to say, Oh, death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? I love this. It's like Paul in the octagon, and he's taunting death. It's like his opponent in this contest is death itself embodied. And Paul's like, death, bring it on. Where's your sting? What do you have against me? Why could Paul say that? Because Paul followed Jesus, who experienced death to its fullness, and yet came out the other side. Do you understand, like, how do you, how do you stop someone that the greatest thing which you can scare them with is death, and they're like, I've already been there. Been there, done that, and I'm on the other side. Like, like when Jesus rose again from the dead, I guarantee you he was not concerned about starving to death or cancer or any All these things that, for the most part, have power over us because the ultimate end of these things is death. Which, when you think about it, death is this ultimate alienation, isn't it? It's this ultimate exile. Death steals from us the things that we love most. That's one of the reasons. I mean, for me as, as, a, as a dad, two daughters, and as a husband, married 27 years, that to me, honestly, if I were to like unpack it, that's the one thing that I would say that would bum me out the most, is that I would be separated from those whom I love the most on this planet. I'd be separated from them. That stinks. But the fact of the matter is, those who have hope in Jesus, that follow this Jesus, also will share in the life that he offers as well. Which means, death is this momentary speed bump in the middle of my life. It sucks for the moment, but in the long run, Jesus will overcome it all. Amen? So the reality is, that allows us to enter into something so full of hope in the midst of a lot of grief and pain and hardship. So the second thing that we see is that whatever happened that was set forth in his death worked out uh, because of the resurrection. The second thing that we see is that death ultimately does not have the final word. Now, again, however you think about the resurrection, one of the things that you have to take away from is that what's normal, if you want to talk about what's normal on planet Earth, what's normal is suffering and death. Happy Easter. You guys have a wonderful day. That's what's normal. Like, what's normal for life is we suffer. I mean, yeah, there's moments where it's punctuated with happiness and joyfulness and good things, and you get married, or you fall in love, or you have a child, and it's amazing, or you get a new job, or you get a promotion, you buy a house. All of these things that bring momentary excitement, they might last a little bit longer. Some expiration dates come sooner than others. But at the end of the day, at some point, death comes in like a shadow and overcomes everything right that's what's normal at some point all that which is good ends at some point every insane sunset stops because it's overcome by darkness at some point every rich enduring moment of love or honeymoon at some point comes to an end and transitions it reshapes because death is everywhere not just physically but death On every front and every level. But what we know above and beyond anything is that this constant, this consistent thing we call death, because of Jesus overcoming death, if anything, what it shows us is that it is not as constant and consistent as we once thought. That Jesus somehow, by way of power of God, the power of God has been able to overcome it, to conquer it, to bring victory over it. And those that follow this Jesus are also sharing in the same type of victory that Paul is describing. Do you realize this incredible possibility that this opens up for our lives? Because it raises the reality of life breaking into every single area of those whose lives have been infected by the shadow of death. Just pause and think about this. If you were to pause for a moment and think about what are the areas in which death, like a virus or bacteria, has infected your life. Again, I don't just simply mean physical death. I mean death in every way. Think of it as a virus, death in relationships, death in things that were once incredible and amazing and life-giving. Now, when you think about the name of that person, it just brings a sense of angst and grief and sadness and frustration, maybe even in some ways anger, because something that was once so good, so amazing, so rich has become infected by death. You understand this if Jesus is alive from the dead what this means is that there is the possibility of life after or beyond the death that we experience what this means that where death has been powerful and infecting infectious and influencing and have authority over. It could be even in relationships where death is prevalent. There is a reason why death is there because death is oftentimes associated with actions and activities that are influenced by death. So for example, in let's just say a relationship where a husband and wife or a roommate situation where there's a sense of anger and bitterness and hurt and offense that's been allowed to fester within that relationship and death is now like this, like this virus beginning to infect the whole thing. Somewhere along that line, within the relationship between these two, there is arrogance, or pride, or hardness of heart, or, or bitterness, or something. Or that might have even been influenced by deep wounds or hurts, which then festers into other deep wounds and hurts, and it gets bounced off of each other. And because people don't know how to work through these things, oftentimes it just allows death to permeate this entire thing until the point it reaches a moment of no return where death just overtakes it entirely. You realize that because of Jesus overcoming death with life, that resurrection hope is a possibility for everything. This is the hope of the future. This is the hope that one day our God, you realize that God is on a mission to kick hell out of this earth. That's the mission of God. It's to get hell out of this place to renew and to restore this place we call home, to get everything that is influenced by death and destruction, which is the ultimate of what hell is, suffering. And if anything, what the resurrection tells us is that death has been defeated. It doesn't have the ultimate word. Life does. And finally, what we see is that life ultimately is available to those who receive it. So this is where it kind of personalizes it. That This is not just some sort of abstraction out there that will one day happen or one day take place. And we are just passive observers of something on a cosmic scale that's unfolding in the universe. In fact, quite astoundingly amazing enough is that God actually invites us to be responders to what he's up to in this world. And that life ultimately is available to each one of us who receive it. But here's the catch. You got to receive it. You got to trust what God is up to. Because there are people that will say, I prefer darkness. No, thank you. I prefer a life that's in opposition to you. No, thank you. I prefer to live according to my own choices, my own understanding of right and wrong and good and evil. No, thank you, God. And as a result, to pull away from God who's the source, again, I always think of it this way, God is the source of life and light and love. He's the source of it all. So if you want anything that has to do with light or life or love, it all is sourced from God. God is the palette in which all other variants of colors come from, he is the source of it all. To pull away from that palette, to pull away from that source, is to not move into a sphere of more light, better life, or more love is actually is to move away by removal into death, and darkness, and alienation. It's also known as hell, destruction, suffering. When the invitation of God is to come, trust me, life is a possibility for all. And this is how Paul the Apostle would later summarize this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll wrap it up with this. He says, and then Jesus... Has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruit of the harvest of all who have died. So you see, Just as death came into the world through one man, now the resurrection from the dead has come through another man. And what Paul is doing is kind of tapping into this historical mentality. Again, a lot of us as Westerners, which is you know who we are and how we think, we think on a very individualistic level. Which means, um, in a lot of ways, sons and daughters, great grandsons and daughters of the Enlightenment, we tend to think of individualism as like this is all there is. Like I am an individual. I don't allow others to influence me. I'm not part of the group think. I'm not part of a my tribe is me. Right? And, but that's that's kind of a fairly new understanding on the world scene of history, that throughout all history people have recognized we are part of a tribe, we're part of a race, we're part of a community, we're part of a uh, whatever, ethnicity or, or eth- eth- ethnic group or a nation, whatever. But the point is, is that what he's saying is that all humanity can trace its lineage back to this one man named Adam. And the idea is that Adam disobeyed God. Rather than trusting God's love, Adam distrusted God's love and went into a path that was away from God, into death, into darkness, and into alienation. And yet the mission of God was to come and bring Adam and Eve and all of humanity out of that death, darkness, and alienation by actually stepping into the death, darkness, and alienation. That's what happened on the cross. But we see as an outcome of all of that, Jesus rises again from the dead, and therefore invites all of us to be a part of a new family, a new head. This is where Paul later would go on to say, again, so you see, as death came into the world through one man, Adam, now resurrection from the dead began through another man, it's obviously Jesus, just as everyone dies because all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ are given new life. So the big question we gotta think about you gotta think about is who do I belong to? What family lineage do I belong to? And here we all belong to some family lineage, but the family lineage that has never been changed from the family lineage of Adam means that we are still part of this family lineage that brokers in, moves in, works in, lives in, tries to make sense of death, darkness, and alienation. And There's something wired deep within inside of us that says that's not okay. I'm not okay with death, darkness, and alienation. So we work and we create inauthentic, counterfeit ways to undo death, darkness, and alienation. It's called Facebook. It's called Botox. It's called working out. It's all. We have all sorts of means in which we have set up in this society of ours to say we want to not only reverse death, darkness, and alienation, We want to, tr- if anything, we want to try to stop it or slow it. So we invest billions of dollars within our nation as a whole and within the world to somehow try to undo death, darkness, and alienation by creating things like social networks, by creating things like uh, liposuction or things that would make us look better. But the whole aim is to undo or to stop or to reverse the effects of all of these things that we know are alive or at work within all of us. But the invitation of Jesus is to say, step into the story that I give. So I want to respond now. As I don't know where all of us are at or how we think about this story. My hope is that if you're here this morning and you're familiar with the story of Jesus because you trust Jesus, that we would maybe be awakened out of our forgetfulness because we all forget. If you're here this morning and maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you have never really committed yourself to this story, my hope would be this morning would be that you would commit yourself to this story, that you would trust this God that loves you, that has given himself over to you, that has created a path for a future that involves life and light and transformation and love and love and hope, because that's what love does. It changes us for the better. So we're going to respond by singing and just giving our worship back to God I'll have the worship team come on up. And how about right now? Let's respond by all standing before God. And if you're here this morning and maybe you're not a Christian or maybe you're somebody that at some point has some level of familiarity with Christianity and yet you've drifted, maybe you've forgotten and your life has borne the shadows, the reality, maybe even the scars of death. I want to pray for you, because maybe for some of you, what needs to happen today is for you to cry out to this God that loves you with an extravagant form of love. And it's not just a sentimental love. It's a love that does things for us. That's what the cross is. It's God acting god doing god stepping into our brokenness to take it for us and then the place of death to give us hope beyond death so i want to pray for you and if you hear this afternoon now right it's officially afternoon i want to pray for you and if you would like to trust this jesus i'm going to just say a simple prayer and you can just repeat it after me in your own heart you don't have to say it out loud it's not intended to embarrass anyone. It's intended just to give you an opportunity to pray to maybe give you words as maybe you might not know what to say. So I'd just like to give you some words that you can use to bring before God. So you can just repeat this after me and then I'll pray for us and then we'll sing. So if that's you, why don't you just repeat after me in your own heart. Why don't we all bow our heads and close our eyes and just just pray. Just consider this great God and if you would like to pray that prayer, just repeat it after me in your own heart. Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you for stepping into my mess, my brokenness, my world, my darkness. The death that I feel powerless to overcome, that's crushing my relationships, all the things I hold dear, that I love, that I value, are slipping. Jesus, I trust you to make me new, to wash me, to forgive me from running from you. Help me to follow you, to trust you now. Make my life new in you. Pray these things in Jesus' name.